0: Of all the churches that Paul ministered to, without a doubt, the church at Corinth gave him the most grief, yet he never abandoned that church. Paul understood that God loved that rowdy bunch, and he must love them too. It did not mean that Paul had an obligation to let the Corinthians walk all over him. Not at all. Paul was a representative of Jesus Christ in that situation. And as God's representative, he could not allow some things to go without a response. But in the end, Paul had an obligation to model the faithfulness and the love of God to the church at Corinth. So when he says in verse 4 of the opening chapter, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus... He's not being sarcastic. He's not being ironic or sardonic in any way. His thanksgiving is genuine there. I want to emphasize that Paul is not expressing thanks for the Corinthian immorality. He's not expressing thanks for their sin, per se. To give thanks in everything doesn't mean that we thank God for the sin itself. Sin is massively offensive to God. His son had to pay an unspeakable price to satisfy God's righteous demands for sin. It's no casual thing. Paul's not expressing thankfulness for the Corinthian immorality in and of itself, but more specifically, he's expressing thanks for the grace of God, which was given to them. I trust you see the difference. He's thankful that God has made a provision for them in spite of The fact that they're rebellious. We've spent some time in the two introductory lessons that we've had on 1 Corinthians discussing the background information on the city of Corinth and its cultural influence on this church. Corinth, as we have said, may not have been any more immoral than any other port city of the ancient world. But that is no great compliment to the Corinthians. That's like saying Hitler was no more evil than Stalin. Both were pretty bad guys. Port cities of the ancient world brought together sailors, women, and money. And when that happens, short of a strong moral foundation, some sort of immorality is going to be inevitable. Short of a strong moral foundation. And that city certainly didn't have it. As strong as the cultural influence toward Sexual immorality was in Corinth, that was by no means the only cultural factor that was negatively influencing the Corinthians. The culture had also negatively influenced them, the Corinthian believers I'm referring to here, to be overly impressed with style over substance. They had a problem with a lack of unity, they had a problem with lawsuits, a problem with marriage. They certainly had a problem with liberty versus license, and it looks very much like they had adopted the aesthetics that were common to the cult religions of the Greeks around Corinth into their church, calling them spiritual gifts. One needs only to be mildly culturally savvy today to recognize these as problems that plague the church in 21st century America. We, too, have allowed ourselves to be influenced by our culture far more than we've influenced the culture for Jesus Christ. And that's unfortunate. It can change. And things, I think, are happening in our country that demonstrate that it might be changing. But up until now, the church, and I'm talking about the church at large, has allowed the culture much more influence inside the walls of the church than the church is making outside of the walls of the church. That's unfortunate, but it's really hard to argue with. Even with all the problems in Corinth, though, Paul still found something for which he could be grateful. He was grateful that God had shown them grace, and I am too. We all want grace for ourselves. We also ought to be grateful when God shows it to other people. He was also grateful... That because of that grace, the Corinthians had knowledge. They also had the ability to communicate that knowledge. Read along with me verses 5 through 7, or verses 4 through 7. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The knowledge that's in view specifically in that passage is spiritual knowledge more than secular knowledge. It's true that the Corinthian believers were overly impressed with knowledge from a secular sense, and they were certainly overly impressed with the ability to communicate knowledge. That's the culture that they lived in. Debating was sport back then. It was something that was very highly thought of, oratory, was very much respected. But they were overly impressed with that. In spite of all that, Paul is still happy that they have knowledge, but he's happy that they have knowledge not of secular things, He's more specifically happy that they have knowledge of biblical things, of scriptural things. And he's also quite happy that they have a knowledge to express it. He's not going to be so happy that they put him down for what they think is a lack of, a lack of ability on Paul's part to express knowledge. But it's at least a start, Paul thinks, by means of grace. The testimony concerning Christ, which is the gospel in context was confirmed or established, bibai o is the Greek term, to the Corinthians. It was confirmed in the Corinthians. It was established in the Corinthians. That's something to be thankful for. They were aware of what the gospel was. They were aware that God loved them so much that he sent his son to die as a substitute for them. They were aware of what Paul had previously told the Philippian jailer. When the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't hand them a five-page tract. He he got it out in one sentence. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. Sometimes the day, 2,000 years later, we have tried to make this so hard. There are so many believe ands. You know how people do that? Evangelists do it. Pastors do it, too. Believe and come and join our church. I was at a very large Christmas service about a decade ago. Our church didn't have one that particular night, a Christmas Eve service. And I was just eagerly anticipating the the invitation because I knew this pastor had an incredible reputation for giving the gospel. Well, he gave something at the end, but it wasn't the gospel. In In fact, it highly offended me because I knew there were many people there that needed Christ desperately. And the invitation was, "Come to the light." Everybody lit their candles. Come to the light. Come down forward. Come to the light and join the and I won't say the church's name. Family, join our church. Hold on, wait a minute. That might be a fine thing to do at some point in time, but that's not primary. Because you, can, you can go to church all your life and not be saved. You can go to your church all your life and then end up dying an unbeliever. The very first thing that we need to be called to is called to Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. And Paul is happy that they have that information. Everything else can come later. So there's no believe and. It's faith alone in Christ alone according to the Scriptures. The Gospel of John is the only book in the Bible that has, as its expressed purpose in the text, the evangelization of the unbeliever. You know, that's the only one. It's the only book that's written with its primary audience being the unbeliever. Now, other books tell us how to be saved, to be sure. But it's the only one that has, as its expressed purpose in the text, evangelism. And you know, in the Gospel of John, there's but one condition that's ever given for the receiving of eternal life, that's faith. And there's only one object, and that's Jesus Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. Not faith plus joining a church. Not faith plus giving money. Believe me, if it was faith plus giving money, I would pound that home. But it's not. (laughs) Far from it. I would have to say, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, do not give a penny to the church. It's wasted money. You're fooling yourself into thinking that you can buy your way into heaven. No, it's not faithless joining anything, this church or any other church. It's not faithless giving any money. I don't care how sacrificial the giving might be. It's not faith in changing your life. Now, changing your life is wonderful. I've heard so many people say, well, I'm going to give up drinking and go to heaven. No, you're going to trust Jesus Christ and go to heaven. If you end up giving, giving up drinking later, that's fine. I was in Poland doing a... Series of pastors' conferences there, and as one of the side conferences that I had an opportunity to do on time, I was given the the opportunity to speak to a group of men who were alcoholics and addicted to drugs. The fellow that got up before me to speak, who was one of their own, I heard this only through a translator. The translator was sitting, the interpreter was sitting next to me, whispering in my ear what he was saying. And what he essentially was saying to these men who were all downtrodden. It was very interesting. All the women were looking straight ahead, paying great attention, and all the men had their heads down like this. And I, I could just tell this guy was beating on them terribly, just beating on them. He was telling them to pour the whiskey down the drain, throw the pills away, and if you want to go to heaven, you've got to do this. Well, when it came my time to come up, I figured I'm a guest speaker. They're going to throw me out pretty soon anyway, and I said, listen... <laughs> You understand, don't you? (laughs) I said, listen, I don't care if you stop drinking or not. And all the air was sucked out of the crowd pretty quickly on that. I said, I don't care if you give up your drugs or not right now. And about that time, every one of those heads popped up. I said, what I care most deeply about that takes primary importance, way more primary importance than any of your lifestyle changes, is what do you think of Jesus Christ? That's where the change needs to take place. In your soul, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Is he your Savior, or is he just someone you read about in a book? Have you placed your faith and your faith alone in Jesus Christ? we went on for a bit of time. I tell you what, even the man who I had contradicted his testimony, who was one of the pastors of that church, even he was paying attention. But I'll tell you what, that's what they needed was Jesus Christ. It's not faith plus anything. It's faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now, after you're saved, after one is saved, yes, baptism is legitimate and commanded. Yes, joining a church is the right thing to do. Yes, reading your Bible. Yes, getting off drugs and alcohol is a wonderful thing to do. Of course, I would never argue against that, but it's got to be in the right order. Because you can make all the lifestyle changes you want to. All the lifestyle changes that are possible that... That you might attempt, that's not getting you any closer to heaven. For by grace we have been saved, the Apostle Paul says. Listen carefully. For by grace we have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Did you hear that? Not of works. If you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, I want you to relax for a moment. Because I'm not going to ask you to join a church. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to give a testimony. I'm not going to ask you to give any money. I'm not going to ask you to change a thing except for your mind about who Jesus Christ was. He was the God-man. He was the perfect Savior. He's the only substitute. He's God's Son who came and gave his life for us. That's what I want you to know this morning. And if you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, I want you to do it right now. You can do it in the privacy of your own thoughts. You don't even have to speak out loud. That's what Paul was grateful to the Corinthians for the Corinthian situation. He was grateful they had that knowledge. And as messed up as they were, and believe me, they were a messed up bunch. A messed up bunch, believe me. You'll see it over the next few months as we cover this ladder. They were messed up, but they were saved. And Paul's grateful for it. Paul's grateful that God showed them grace. And what disturbed me so much about that time in Poland, in that particular episode, was that I was definitely afraid when I left that some of those men came to Christ right there in their seats. I'm sure they did. We talked about it. And I was very much afraid that some of the wives who had been, by the way, abused by their husbands, there's no excuse ever for that, but I'm so afraid that some of them did not accept Christ because they didn't think they needed him after all, they weren't addicted to drugs or alcohol. So they must not have needed him as bad as their husband did. Listen, we all need him desperately. We've all been born in, into sin, and we've all committed acts of personal sin that demonstrate that we do need a Savior. All, all of us need a Savior, including those wives. So that, that really grieved me greatly that perhaps some of the men were saved, and the wives might not have been. The Corinthians understood the gospel, and Paul is very grateful for that. They were also not lacking in any spiritual gift. Now, for a smaller church, and the Corinthian church was probably pretty small, for a smaller church, that's saying a lot that they weren't lacking in any spiritual gift. That's one of the things that makes a church healthy, to have all the spiritual gifts functioning in a healthy way. That's something to be thankful for. The revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it is mentioned here, is referring to the time that Jesus will return for his church This is known as the rapture of the church in some circles, or the resurrection of the church. Paul speaks about it in both his letters to the Thessalonians. That's not to be confused with the second advent of Christ. That's when he comes back to rescue Israel and will establish his thousand-year kingdom on earth. But this is speaking about the rapture of the church. Theologians say that the rapture of the church is imminent, which means that it could happen at any time. Christ could come back for his church at any time. So when Paul says in verse 7 that you are not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's speaking of that day, the day of the resurrection of the church. They were ready for the resurrection of the church. They were ready because they had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the implication to us is, as we read this letters, are we ready? If there's nothing that has to happen prophetically, there's nothing in the Bible that has to happen prophetically before Jesus Christ could come again, meaning it could happen at any moment. It could happen before we're finished speaking here today. It could have happened in Paul today, Paul thought. But if it could happen at any point, then we need to be ready. And the ready that Paul's talking about is not necessarily having cleaned up their life, although that would be great the first thing that he wants them to be ready for is having placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not that hard. Father, I realize that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I place my faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. I'm going to stop trying to save myself through my own goodness. That's all they needed to do. And the Corinthians had done that, and he's happy about that. So there were things to be grateful for in Corinth. You notice he's not grateful for the sin. That's going to have to be corrected. But he is grateful that God had shown them grace and that they were ready. If Christ had come back in the Corinthian in the days of this church at Corinth, they were ready for him. And the challenge to us is, are we ready today? Are you ready personally today? He was grateful for all these things. Now look at verses 8 through 9 for me. He's speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall confirm you, also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Referring to that same period. God is faithful, through whom you were also called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verses 8 and 9 might be the most theological of all these opening verses of the Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We've seen in the introductory material and in the background information that I've given you, that the Corinthian believers could hardly be considered faithful. (laughs) Hardly at all. In fact, this was probably the most carnal church of all the churches that Paul dealt with. But in spite of that, in spite of their unfaithfulness, Paul says God is faithful. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called. They were unfaithful. God is faithful. Now, this is not a call to unfaithfulness, believe me. I'm not encouraging unfaithfulness. But I'm saying that even though they were unfaithful, God remained faithful. That's the kind of God that we have. He's not fickle. He's faithful. The Corinthians were called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. The the Greek term for fellowship, koinonia, means a close, intimate, personal relationship. They were called into this relationship. And that fellowship occurs on two levels. One permanent and the other one experiential. The positional relationship that the Corinthians had with God through Jesus Christ was permanent. Their positional relationship was permanent. Their experiential relationship was based upon their faithfulness at any given moment. So I want you to see the distinction between these two aspects of fellowship. They had a permanent fellowship with God that was positional. Sometimes theologians call that positional sanctification. They also had an experiential relationship with God that was temporal. It could come and go based upon their own faithfulness at any given moment. Two relationships that they had with God through Jesus Christ. One permanent, the other one not so permanent. It's the positional relationship. It's that permanent relationship that's in view, in verse eight of this letter. Who shall also confirm you? That's the same word that was used back in back in verse uh, six. Bib-ai-oh-oh. It's the same word. It could also be translated uh, to make firm, to confirm, to establish, to make sure. Who shall make sure? Who shall establish you to the end, blameless in the day? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, or Jesus in the context, will establish these Corinthian believers all the way to the end. And this is so important. This is one of the reasons why we made such an issue out of the background of the church at Corinth. These people were carnal, these people were as sinful as you get. If you line these people up with any of the people outside of the church at Corinth, you're not going to be able to tell any difference in them. And in some cases, Paul's even going to say the immorality that's going on inside this church is going to surprise and shock the people outside of this church. That's how bad it is. (laughs) Nevertheless, these people, these carnal Corinthians, had a permanent relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's God who has established them. It's God who has confirmed them. And how long does he confirm them? Until the next time they sin? Well, watch closely who shall also confirm you to the end, to the telos, to the completion of all of this. And in context, the completion is the resurrection of the church. Until it's all over, he has got you in the palm of his hand, in his grip. Who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, with this background information, we can see they were hardly sinless. So Paul cannot be saying that from, that from that point in time on that they will be sinless people. All you have to do is read through this. And you know they're not sinless. But when he says blameless, he is referring to that positional relationship that they have with God through faith alone in Christ alone that cannot be changed. And that he will confirm, he'll establish, he'll make it sure. He'll make it sure until the end. This is so comforting, and I'm so pleased, humbly pleased, that the Holy Spirit chose to do this in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Certainly there's information about it in Ephesians and Philippians, and we look at those churches and we say, well, that was a good church. Boy, that church at Ephesus really had it going. Boy, the Philippians, they were something really special. But you know what? He says this information about confirming them to the end, establishing them to the end to a group of carnal believers so we couldn't mistake it for their behavior. This is a positional relationship. This verse affirms the security of the believer. Once the believer has placed his or her faith in Jesus Christ, they are declared righteous. God says, you now have my righteousness. We call that justification. Their sins are forgiven, and they are saved from the eternal penalty of sin. And there is nothing that can undo that because it's confirmed to the end by Jesus Christ himself. That is what is meant by the theological phrase eternal security. Let me say before I go any further that this does not give the believer a license to sin. It does not give the believer a license to rebel against God. The scriptures are crystal clear that those who abuse the grace of God in that way are subject to severe discipline from God. He disciplines those that he loves. The believer never gets away with anything. Sin carries with it. Consequences, but loss of salvation is not one of those consequences. I never forget a time that I was in India and I was speaking on this particular subject, speaking to a group of pastors there. About seven or eight hundred pastors. It was a great group. And everybody loved me until I spoke about eternal security. <laughs> <laughs> then the mood changed just slightly. And I'll never forget one, one fellow. He was sitting up to the front. It was a very long auditorium, so long I couldn't see the people in the back. And he was sitting up front, and he was dressed in all white and sandals, as those wonderful men were. And as I was presenting this, before ever letting me finish, he started coming up to the platform. And I stopped and through the interpreter. I said, what is it you want? And he started arguing. He said, you're giving people a license to sin. I cannot stand this. I will not stand for this. How dare you do that? And I said, if you'll sit down and listen, you'll understand that I haven't given anybody a license to sin. Those are your words, not mine, sir. Because sin carries with it grave consequences. Anybody who thinks that the doctrine of the security of the believer is a license to sin has not read the New Testament. And I was able to go forward with my message, and as, it, as I was finished, then he was, oh, okay, I see that. <laughs> Two years later, I was back in India again, and at the end of one of my sessions in the morning, I was there with a fellow named Dennis Agela from Gambia. It happened to me, my session, and the man came up. I was actually with GEM. I was preaching for GEM that day, and the, a man came up, and it was the same guy, and i never forget him because, I mean, I had it burned into my mind. Not many people charge the pulpit when you're preaching. <laughs> You remember those? And he came up to me, and through the interpreter said, you don't remember me, I know. And I said, no, I, I remember you. you know. <laughs> and I was, expecting, I was expecting something else, and, and he said, I just wanted to tell you how you changed my life. I, I just appreciate it so much. Now I understand. He said, do you mind if I say some things to the audience? And we're very careful about that, because we don't know how long they're going to go. But he picked the microphone up, and they were interpreting for me, and he, was, he, he thought I was the greatest thing that had ever come to India. Big difference because he understood. You see, if, if you think that the doctrine of eternal security gives you a license to live any way you want to live with no consequences, you're out of your mind. It just so happens, though, that the one consequence is not the loss of salvation, it can be a miserable life, a life apart from the contentment that you should have in Jesus Christ. It can be a life that may end in the sin that leads to death, as the Apostle Paul, or John calls it, but you're not going to lose your salvation. You probably ought to be happy about that. I know I am, because we mess up all the time. Some of you are messing up right now, but it doesn't mean you've lost your salvation, thankfully. I hope we would all agree that the church at Corinth was a carnal bunch. Yet Paul affirms their position in Christ right from the beginning of this correspondence. I really suspect if loss of salvation was a possibility, Paul would have talked about it right now. He would have pulled that out as a club and he had hit him over the head with it. If you don't change, if you don't expel this immorality, if you don't stop these lawsuits, if you don't get your marriages straight, if you don't start understanding how to operate spiritual gifts in the church more effectively, you're going to lose your salvation. But he doesn't say that. In fact, he affirms their security before he ever gets to that. Listen, pastors all over the world deeply desire those that they minister to to walk in fellowship with God. I do too. So please don't take this today when I affirm your security, when the scriptures affirm the security of each believer here. Don't take it as a license to to go out and abuse the grace of God. God's not going to be mocked. Who do you think you're abusing? You can't do that. But we can't impart a false notion like loss of salvation where it's not found just as some sort of motivational tool to get you to do better. I'm not going to do that. I would not be fulfilling my duty as an expositor of the word. I want you to do better, but I'm not going to threaten you with loss of salvation. That's God's business, and he said no. He has secured you. Now, when we speak of the doctrine of eternal security, I do want to make this one caveat. I am speaking of someone who has truly placed their faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life. I'm not talking about someone who just says that they did. You know, that's an argument that people make. Well, they just said they're a believer and they're not really a believer. I'm not talking about any of that. That's a discussion for another day. It's a rabbit trail, actually. But we're speaking about the security of the believer. And the scriptures affirm that all three members take part in the security of the believer. Hold your place here for just a moment if you have a Bible with you and turn to John chapter 10, and we'll see that both the Father and the Son have a part to play in the security of the believer. In John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27, Jesus is speaking here, and he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. Watch just just for a moment. I give them eternal life. If I was to give you, if I could do it, I can't, I wish I could, but if I was to give you 10 years of life to add on to the life that you have right now, when would that expire? 10 years. If I could possibly give you 100 years to add on to the life that you have right now, when would it expire? Not hard, it's 100 years. No trick question. But if I, like Jesus, could say, I give you eternal life, when would that expire? Never. Charles Ryrie, the theologian, used to say, if eternal life can be lost, we're calling it the wrong thing. That's what Jesus is giving them, eternal life. Not 10 more years, not 50 more years, not life until they sin the next time, not life until they sin really bad the next time, but eternal life. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Just in case we didn't understand, they'll never perish. It doesn't say they'll they'll never perish until the next time they sin, or until the next time they offend God. Now, again, there's consequences to sin. You're going to pay for it. God is going to discipline you, and it's going to be miserable. But in terms of your eternal life, you'll never perish. And this is the, the phrase that relates to eternal security, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. If we were to search the scriptures, we would find out that since Jesus is God, he's also omnipotent. He shares all the, the, the essence and the characteristics of God, his infinite perfections. He is infinitely powerful. If I had you by the arm, hanging over a cliff like you see in some of those Sylvester Stallone movies, you know, while, while one of us is hanging onto a tree and the other one's kind of hanging off onto the over the cliff, and and I've got you by the arm. I'm going to do everything I can to pull you up. But I got news for you. I'm not omnipotent. I got news for myself. I'm not not as strong now as I was five years ago, certainly not ten years ago. I'm going to do everything I can to maintain my grip upon you. But it's possible that my hand's going to get sweaty. It's possible that my muscles will just fatigue and give out. And you're going for a swan dive. But if God's got His hand on you, if Jesus Christ has His grip on you, and He's omnipotent, there should be no fear. He's not letting you go. You don't even play any part in it. You can relax. He's the one doing the holding on. And you're not going off that cliff because He's omnipotent. And this is a promise. Well, that's not good enough in verse 29 he says my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand his father's hand I and the father are one he concludes in this passage our Lord himself confirms that both the father and the son have you in their grip it's almost like this was the, the situation you're hanging off a cliff and you've got Jesus Christ on one arm and you've got God the father on the other you're not going anywhere The Son participates in the security of the believer, John 10, 28. The Father participates in the security of the believer, John 10, 30, 29 and 30. The Holy Spirit also participates in the security of the believer. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the 30th verse, he says, "...and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." That could also be translated, and in some translations you'll see it, "...until the day of redemption." The same day that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. He's got us in his grip. He's got us sealed up until Christ comes back for his church. In ancient times, they didn't have secured emails or uh, a telephone security or Uvu or Skype or any of that kind of stuff. So when a king wanted to send a message to another king in another place, he would make that message... and and write it down, and then he would take his seal, his wax, and he would put that wax, hot wax, onto that letter, and he would seal that letter up. Then he would hand it to a messenger, and the messenger would take that letter to another king or a sovereign of some sort. Now, if that seal had been broken, then that messenger was in big trouble, because the reason the seal was on there so that the letter couldn't be read by anybody else. But if the seal had been broken, then it was death to the messenger. Paul is using that imagery and saying, I have sealed you up, sealed it up tight until God opens the letter at the resurrection of the church. Nobody's going to break that seal, including you. Now, some people would like to say, well, in the John context, yeah, nobody else can get you out of the Father's hand, but I can let go. I can take myself out of the Father's grip. Give me a break. In the first place, the context, there, no one includes the one that's being spoken to. And what makes you think that you can get out of the grip of an omnipotent God? Can't be done. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have you firmly in their grip. I love the way Paul ends one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. That's Romans chapter 8. He begins it by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The term in Christ Jesus is a favorite of Paul to indicate someone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, who is positionally related to Christ. He says there's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. He ends that great chapter, and I'll end my time together today with this verse. He ends that great chapter by saying, I am persuaded, I'm convinced, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is... In Christ Jesus. Same phrase he uses at the beginning. I hope hope you heard in there some couplets that describe just about any possible contingency. Death or life. Angels or principalities or powers or things present or things to come. Did you hear that? Things present. There's nothing in the present that can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Paul's term for someone who is a believer. There's nothing that can do that things present, or things to come. There's no future judgment. There's no future sin that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying these things. When we get back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4-9, through 9. he's saying them to a carnal bunch. The believers in Corinth were secure in their position in Christ in spite of their personal failures. And one final time, I want to tell you this morning, in in case you didn't hear it the first four or five or six, I am in no way expressing the notion in any form whatsoever that the doctrine of eternal security gives you a license to live any way you want to live. That's not the teaching of the Word of God. It's not an encouragement to sin. Far from it. The fact that our relationship with God was secured at the moment we placed our faith in Jesus Christ should be a source of unspeakable comfort. Knowing that God is not going to leave us. Your mother or your father may have left you. And I know some of you in here, your fathers left you when you were very young. And it still hurts today, decades later. But God says, I'm not going to ever leave you no matter what you've done. You know, one of the most cruel things that I've heard little children express, cruel in the sense of I'm, I'm sad that they have to express this cruelty. They think that their daddy left because of something they did. You've heard that? If I'd have just been better, if I wouldn't have cried that night, maybe daddy wouldn't have left. No. Daddy left because daddy had his own reasons for leaving, had nothing to do with you. You know what? God's not going to ever, ever, ever leave you. Once you're in his family, by grace through faith, he's not going to ever leave you. And you can cry all night, you can stomp your feet, you can be the worst child in the world, he's still not going to leave you. Now that doesn't encourage you to stomp your feet and to cry all night. It should encourage us to love him more deeply and desperately than we've ever loved him in our life. Because we know we can never lose that relationship. I have a relationship with my wife that is secure. Both of us realize it's secure. I know she's not going anywhere. Do you think the fact that I know that she's not going anywhere encourages me to be unfaithful? Think about it for a minute. Of course not. That encourages faithfulness on my part. I'm not going to return her faithfulness and her pledge of fidelity with unfaithfulness. If I did, people would think I'm out of my mind. The doctrine of eternal security is a wonderfully comforting, encouraging doctrine that makes us more likely, if we're functioning rightly, it makes us more likely to be faithful than to be unfaithful. We all fail at some point in our lives, most of us at many points, but that failure will not sever the tie that binds us to God. God is faithful even when we're not. Far from being a license to sin, the doctrine of eternal security is a motivation to love and to serve God with every ounce of energy that we have.